I, I met Ernest during my first week of college. He was quiet, unassuming, with a wicked sense of humor. He was up for anything at any time, especially late in the night. You could talk to him about anything. And so we did hit it off. We became a BFF before there was such an acronym. In fact, I actually introduced him to Christ. And uh, I was talking to him about what you need to do to become a Christian. You pray this prayer. And he just felt weird praying it in front of me. So he went to his own room, prayed the prayer that I was suggesting that he pray. He came out and he was a Christian. During the first year of college, we were inseparable. Wherever he went, I was there. Wherever I went, he was there. He had a lime green Toyota Tercel, and he let me drive it. And I drove it everywhere, and we would do spring break and L.A. trips together, and we were tight. It was right around sophomore year um, that he was at my house, and we were watching a show. And on the show, there were two gay people, and they were talking about their love for one another, and I, I made a comment. Honestly, I don't, I don't remember what comment I made. But Ernest didn't say anything, and he just, he just went dark. He just went quiet. Shortly after that, I was in a car ride with Ernest, just, I don't know, like a couple days later. I'm, I'm driving his car, right? We're going 70 miles per hour down five, 580. And he was still quiet. And he says to me, a few days ago, we we're watching that show, you made a comment. He said, do you remember that? He said, at that moment, he... He said at that moment he felt like he was shattered because he knew that we would never wind up together. And at that moment he came out and he said, because I'm gay. And you could just tell he was in so much pain. And he felt ashamed. I mean, even just telling me he felt ashamed. I was his best friend and he felt so ashamed. Now, what I didn't know is at the time, he had his um, hand on the handle of the car. And he started to say stuff to me like, I love you, and I want you to have a good life, and this is goodbye. And so I, I saw that, his, I'm, I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? You know, and so, and we were going like, you know, 70 miles down 580. He's about to jump out of the car, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I grabbed him. I'm like, you're not doing that. And then uh, we pulled over. And, and we, had a, we had a long talk. And um, Ernest told me his story. Like the whole story. And, and here's what he told me. He told me that when he was five years old, he realized that there was something different about him. He didn't, he didn't fit in with other boys, they were rough and tumble, and he was gentle, and he preferred hanging out with the girls. So all his friends were, were, were girls. And 
he could relate to them better, but there was also something else that was different because his first crush was with another boy. And he said, I, I knew that I was attracted to other guys at like age really young. Now he was taught that this is wrong, and so he felt like there is something terribly wrong inside me. He felt shame. Not just, I feel wrong, he, he felt he was wrong, and he never told anyone, not his parents, not his sister, no one. And then finally, he, we met, we were best friends, and he felt like he wanted to tell me, he could tell me, but he was scared that someone he loved would look at him straight in the face and utterly reject him. And when I made that comment, he said that's, that's how he felt. And right there and then, he just felt there's nothing to do. This is inescapable shame. He was ready to end his own life. Now, Ernest didn't end his life on that day. But I want you to know that there are a lot of gay people who have. One study by Jeremy Gibbs found that gay teens are four times more likely to have thought of contemplated suicide than their heterosexual peers, four times as likely. I could tell you stories like Eric Borges, who was bullied starting in kindergarten, and he grew up saying that my name is not Eric, but it's faggot. And he told the story on YouTube to try to help other gay teens, and then a month later he killed himself. I could tell you names. Billy Lucas at 15. Carl Walker Hoover at 11 years old. Ben Wood. Ernest did not end his life that day, but our our friendship didn't last very long after that. And I'll just be honest with you, I, I, I just didn't have the tools. I was young, I was stupid, I, and that's no excuse, but it was true. I, did, I didn't know how to have a friendship with Ernest. And, uh, but I'll tell you, I wish I could go back in time. I wish I could replay that. I wish I could do it over. I wish I could do that conversation and that friendship over. And I think if I could, I would apologize first for the comment that I made. And I would look at him straight in the eyes and I would say, I love you. I would say, I accept you as my brother and my friend. And I wish I had said, you know, God loves you and God accepts you. I, I wish I had that conversation, but I just didn't have the tools. I didn't know what to say. I feel like I might have those tools now. We're in a series where we have been talking about sex, we've been talking about singleness, and today we want to talk about same-sex relationships and caring for those who identify as LGBTQ. Recently, our staff team, our board of directors, and a few others from our church went to a conference called Posture Shift. We spent two days, approximately 16 hours, talking about better care for those who identify as LGBTQ. Now, I'm going to tell you that before I went to this conference, I'm thinking two full days, really. 
like, what do we have to talk about for 16 hours? I came out of that conference, and I'm thinking, actually, this is so complex, I could be there for three more days. Our staff team and our board are actively engaged in conversation of how we can love and care for people who identify as gay, who identify as queer. So there's really a lot to say about this issue. And so I want to say on the front end of this conversation that one message is not going to be enough to say all that needs to be said. I do want to share maybe one of the greatest lessons that I learned from this two-day conference, and I'm still learning. And I'm hoping that in the future, as we dialogue more, as we get more feedback, it's going to better prepare me and our staff to know how to address this topic again. But I do feel like I learned some valuable lessons from this conference. And I am wondering if maybe at some point in the near future, you might have a conversation with someone like Ernest, and I'm hoping that this talk will give you more tools. I'm hoping that you'll leave that conversation with no regrets, and that you would be able to listen with humility. Okay, so we went to this two-day conference, and I want to tell you what impacted me the most in a minute But I do first want to say that every message is built on some kind of fundamental assumption. And instead of having you guess what mine is, I'm going to take a risk and I'm just going to be up front. I have been wrestling with this issue for many years and I've I've read and researched this topic through various books. I've listened to arguments on all sides. But the greatest work that I think I've done is I've just grappled with and taken a very deep and searching look at the scripture themselves. And employing every tool that I've learned at seminary about how do you interpret the scriptures. And just taking these texts and just really wrestling and saying, God, what, what are you saying with clarity? What is, does the scripture teach? And I would say that my best read of the scripture is a non-affirming understanding. And by that I mean that I understand the scriptures to teach that God does not sanction same-sex sexual relations. And I promise you that when it comes to this issue, I will continue to pray and search the scriptures and agree to pursue my best understanding of God's word. And I want to pursue God's truth when it comes to this issue and every other issue. And I hope that you will join me. Now, there are plenty of sermon messages, and the whole message will be explaining why we have arrived at a certain conviction by walking through certain passages that gay people might describe as the clobber passages. I, I just want to say that we're not going to do that this morning. And partly it's because I think those messages have been preached before. Uh, I don't think actually there's been enough messages that say, okay, with a non-affirming conviction or belief, so now what? 
And really this message is, the focus is, okay, so now what? So now what? Well, uh, now I think it's a good time for me to share what I think was the greatest lesson I learned from Posture Shift. And I, I don't know, maybe this isn't such a big deal to you, but I have spent my life cultivating a deeper understanding of God's word and in seeing how it applies to those in the gay community, it's been an eye-opening experience for me. And I, I want to share perhaps the biggest thing I've learned. And here it is. Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. There is a difference between acceptance and affirmation. That's the big idea. Now let me hear you guys say acceptance. And let me hear you guys say affirmation. Well, there's, there's a difference between the two. Acceptance means I love you unconditionally. It means I understand you. It means I'm committed to walking alongside you. But, but affirmation means theological belief and conviction. There are Christians who think that if you are non-affirming in position, it means that you are also unaccepting. I don't think that's true. I, I dare to say if you study the life of Jesus, I don't think that's true. But, but let's wait and see. Let's actually go through the scriptures. And if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Some people think that if you are not infirming, it means that you are a hater. I, I, I don't think that's true. Again, let's look at the life of Jesus. Let's look at his ministry. Is that true? Other people think that if you are accepting, like if you, re if you really are accepting and understanding, like I accept you, then it means you are affirming. No, I don't think that's true either. Again, look at the life of Jesus. Now, I have friends that matter to me and me to them, and they know I'm not affirming, but I think they also know that I'm accepting. And I would say the latter part allows us to have an ongoing relationship, allows us to have an ongoing friendship, and knowing there is a difference between the two I think is key. Now, the, the following explanation of Scripture, I borrowed heavenly, uh, heavily, shamelessly from Preston Sprinkle, who I am indebted to for this message, actually, who I met last week. But, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to ask the question, was Jesus accepting? And we're going to ask the question, was Jesus non-affirming? Now, if you, okay, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 9. I, I think one thing you will notice is that Jesus rarely started a relationship with the law. He usually began a relationship with love, always showed acceptance, especially with those who were rejected by the religious elite. Okay, now let me show you what I mean. Okay, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 9, 9 to 13. Now, I'm going to let you read this on your own, but I'm going to walk through this because it's some of the main movements here that we're building off of. Okay, so Jesus sees a man named Matthew. He's sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he says two words to Matthew. Okay, hold on to that. Two words to Matthew. Now, immediately, Matthew responds, but this is kind of mind-blowing because back then, tax collectors didn't just cheat people but they had a reputation for living really immoral lives. They betrayed their people. 
they sided with the oppressive Roman government. They were cheating their people, and they were also living really immoral lives. So the Jews considered them to be worse than thieves and murderers. Like, here's the point of repentance, and then the, the, the Pharisees and the religious elite would think, well, these, these, these people are beyond that point. So a modern-day equivalent might be a pimp or a drug dealer or someone who runs a porn studio on the side and then uses his profits to support world terrorism. That's how the Jews would consider the tax collectors. Now, I'm just wondering, if you met someone like that, someone who's running a porn studio and and funding world terrorism, what would your words be to them? Now, you know, look at the, look at the words of Jesus. What is, what is his words to Matthew? To follow me. That's Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't say, you know, you can attend our church service, but you first need to know where we stand on the issue of extortion. He didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't say, Matthew, I love you, bro, but I hate your sin. He didn't say that either. Jesus doesn't lead with the law. Not here. And there are a lot of laws that he could have led with, with someone like Matthew. But instead, Jesus leads with love. He doesn't rub Matthew's face in his sin. Now, is Jesus, is he, is he soft on extortion? I mean, is he, is he against extortion? Of course he's against extortion. I mean, is Jesus against Robbing other people? Of course Jesus is against robbing other people. But what does he, he leads with love. He builds a relationship. He says, follow me. He, he has table fellowship with Matthew, which means acceptance on a very deep level. And I have to imagine at some point in the context of love and relationship, of walking alongside Matthew. I, I, I bet you Jesus probably turned to Matthew one time, maybe over a meal and said, hey, Ma- Matthew, about this tax collecting thing, no doubt Jesus desires obedience. But to get that obedience, he leads with love. I know from my own life, I am won over by the gospel of grace. I am won over by God's kindness that Jesus Christ would die for me on the cross. And that makes me say, okay, Lord, I'll do anything for you, whatever you ask, because of your grace. Isn't that what turns the heart, the grace of God? And then what you see is that Jesus is leading with love. Now, uh, here's a very dangerous question. You got to be careful when you ask this question. But the question is, okay, well, hold who's the modern-day tax collector? That's, let me just say that however you answer that question, that's just, that's just offensive, right? And I know we're, we're kind of, right? It's offensive. Okay, but so we're not going to answer that question. But I think we're going to approach a different angle. Here's a different angle. Who does religious society in the past few decades, okay, let me put it this way. Back then, you had the religious elite pointing to a group of people and saying, sinners. Okay, all right, you got that. Now, in our day and age, who do the religious elite point to and say, sinners? 
I don't think it's really up for debate. You look in our past few decades, I think it's pretty clear the religious elite have been pointing to the LGBTQ community and saying that. So if that is the same, then Jesus' encounter with tax collectors should inform our approach to those who identify as gay. Would you agree? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being biblical here. Would you, would you agree with that? Shouldn't we love and accept and walk alongside those who identify as gay the way Jesus did with tax collectors? I'm thinking yes. Now here's the next question. Is that what the church has done? In the past few decades, have we done that? Have we done that well? Does anyone think we've done that well? According to statistics, when young non-Christians are asked what's the first thing that comes to mind when they thought of evangelical Christianity, do you know what they said? 91% said the first thing that comes to mind when they think of evangelical Christians is that they're anti-homosexual. Anti, against. When uh, Preston Sprinkle writes about his friend Leslie, she grew up going to church, she identified as gay, but she didn't tell anyone. I think there was a deep sense of shame, and so she didn't tell anyone. And so one day she's sitting in church, and one day the pastor started to talk about how gay people are an abomination to the Lord, and her friend next to her says, Amen! Amen! And she said and made her feel so ashamed that she was an abomination to the Lord that she adored. So she made her confession to the pastor that she is gay and the pastor escorted her out of the church and basically said, you can leave now. Now at that moment, she didn't leave the church. It seems like the church left her. I want to ask you, do you find something wrong with this picture? Because we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to love unconditionally. We're called to walk alongside. Have we fallen far from being like Jesus? As an evangelical community... I think we owe those who are gay an apology... I think we've failed to be like Jesus. We've failed to lead with love. I myself own an apology. I haven't loved like Jesus. Jesus meets another tax collector in Luke 19. You might know his name. He's Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus, he's even worse than Matthew because Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector and he's wealthy. So he wasn't just an extortionist, but he was like a really good one, right? He was really good at cheating other people. In fact, Zacchaeus was hated by everyone. Even other tax collectors hated Zacchaeus. So 
Jesus is passing by to Jericho, and he finds Zacchaeus in a tree. And he says to Zacchaeus, you know, come down immediately. I'm, I'm like, I'm under divine compulsion to befriend you in your own home. And of course, the religious elite got very upset that Jesus was going to spend time in the very home of Zacchaeus. Now, it, it, it's, it's crazy that Jesus only speaks two times about during his encounter with Zacchaeus. First, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house. And then after Zacchaeus repents, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, I just want to point out that, you know, notice it, it wasn't Jesus' stance on extortion that led Zacchaeus to repent. It was his encounter with Christ who loved him. Others rejected him. He said, I want to come to your house. I want to do table fellowship with you. It was an encounter with the love of Jesus, love without footnotes. This radical, unconditional love. And it pushed repentance out to the other side. In this event, Jesus never had to tell Zacchaeus where he stood on the issue of tax collecting. You see, in the ministry of Jesus, there's a difference between acceptance and affirmation. And if you know that, it allows you to be incredibly loving without feeling like somehow you have compromised your beliefs. One time I was texting a friend who had come out as bisexual. And you could tell that this, um, my friend, he was really hurting, you know, and, and, and and right there, as, as we're texting, my friend, just like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, but just in a moment of just anguish, my friend says, you're a pastor. What's your stance on same-sex relationships? Just like, the, just, just have at it. I want to know where you stand, right? Now, let me just pause and, and, and ask you, you know, like, what would you have done? If you were, you were, you were me, what would you have done? I, I, I will tell you that in this instance, in this example, knowing the difference between acceptance and affirmation was a game changer for me because it allowed me to love and to accept and to care unconditionally without feeling like I've compromised my best understanding of scripture. So I don't know, five years ago, I would have, I would have just started, you know, whatever, right? But because I know that Jesus would lead with love, and because I know now, I have more tools now, I know that there's a difference between acceptance and affirmation. Allow me to think, what does my friend really need here? What's going on? What's really going on? I don't think she needs right now a Bible teaching. That's not what her need is. Her need, she's in pain. Can I be a friend? And so I, I texted her. I said, honestly, I could tell you my stance, but right now I don't think you need a prophet. I think you need a pastor, and I think you need a friend. I just want to know, how, how are you doing? Now, now, and then we started to talk on an emotional level, and, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? What's going on? And, and I would say that at that moment, that was a game changer for my friendship. I don't think we would still be friends 
if I had texted something else. It was a turning point. You know, I don't know. I, I, I look back at Zacchaeus. I look back at Matthew. I, I just feel like by God's grace, you know, at that moment, I was kind of doing what I think Jesus did. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to love like he loved. Honestly, um, at some point after this conversation, we did go through Romans 1. We did. I don't know if it was too soon, um, but the conversation just went that way, and so I, I felt like, well, God must be in this, and so we did talk about Romans 1. We walked through the verses. I wanted to know what, this per- what my friend thought, and, and it, I learned a lot. I, I learned what it looks like to engage in a real and honest struggle with the words of God and to be totally real and totally naked before God, and then also to hold on to faith. I know what it looks like to grapple with the scriptures. And I was so honored to be there having a front seat. Now, listen, um, a message like this, it can be broken down into different words. And so I do have uh, a word. It's a word for those who, well, let me put it like this. In our church, we do have people who are very orthodox in their theological beliefs. And we also have people that are not as orthodox in their beliefs. In, in our church, I, I imagine that there are both non-affirming and affirming in theological stance all in the same church. And so I'm speaking to everyone. Here's my question. Whatever you believe, my question to you is, do you know why you believe what you believe? That's my question. Do you, do you, do you know? Do you have a certain theological stance because, because you've actually went through the scriptures and used everything you know about how to interpret scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit and read those passages and wrestled, God, what are you saying? To, or do you have a stance because someone told you something and you thought that was a good way to think because they said it's clear and so you just kind of believe them. I would encourage you to go on a quest and sure you can read books, absolutely, but to look at the scriptures themselves and to ask yourselves, Lord, what is your heart and your thoughts on such an important issue. And I would encourage you to actually look at those scriptures and determine for yourself. If you're looking for guidance, if you're looking for a book, I would recommend Preston Sprinkle's People to be Loved. I've, I've found that to be an excellent read. We're going to go through that as a staff team. He, he looks at all the different scripture passages. He kind of weighs all the different sides. And then he kind of gives you his take, maybe three-fourths way through the book. But it's, it just, I think it's an excellent read. Now, I have a word for all those who are non-affirming. And, and here's my word for you. You guys, it's, uh, it's easy, it's easy to be non-affirming if you're not gay. But if you are gay, 
and you have a non-affirming position, I have heard from some that it is an incredible, incredible load to carry. There is fear of rejection. There's a deep sense of shame. Will you help them? Will you help them to carry their cross? Would you confront your own prejudices? Would you be there for them like a brother or a sister? Would you help them carry their burden? You know, not out of pity, but out of a sense of honoring their struggle, affirming their identity in Christ, affirming that they have something valuable to offer the world, affirming that Jesus came to give us a new identity outside of sin, to treat them how Jesus would treat them, to love on them the way that Jesus loved and accepted unconditionally and said, in effect, I'm going to walk alongside you. Our board is having an active conversation on what it means to create a safe and accepting community for gay people and straight people and all kinds of people to work out their faith with fear and trembling. But I do want to close on this, this word, this last word. You guys remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not be straight. I'm really thankful that that's not the message. Being a heterosexual does not save a person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says that all of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus in his grace stepped down from heaven and was crucified on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could live new lives, new lives of holiness, new lives of generosity, new lives of humility, new lives of sexual wholeness. In short, it's always been about Jesus. And so we run to him. Let's run to him now. Let's pray. Father, I um, was engaging with a group of people prior to this uh, message. And it was said that there are angels here now in this room ready to minister the amazing, incredible love of God into the hearts of your people. I do pray that you would remind us all of your incredible grace, the grace that was shed on the cross, the grace that bled and died for us so that sinners like me, like all of us, could be saved. I thank you that at the foot of the cross, it's all even. We all come to you broken. But there is healing and grace and wonder and joy and hope and new life in Jesus Christ. And so as we remember you and your sacrifice at the Lord's table, I pray that it would be a moment of grace and great love.